and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. I'm your host, Chi Ryan, and in this episode, I'm speaking to Phil Balakdas and Jack Wilkinson from Speculative Futures, an international community focused on speculative and critical design, design fiction, futurism, and strategy and foresight. Practitioners in their own right, Phil has been a practicing visual and interaction designer since 2001 and has experienced designing across a variety of devices and platforms within non-profit, retail, advertising and enterprise software organisations. He is currently an experienced design director at McKinsey and Company, working with a variety of industries to transform and enhance their digital businesses and strategies. He is also a founder and organiser of the Design Futures Initiative, which organises the International Speculative Futures Meetup and the Primer Conference in the US and Europe. An educator and futurist, his events bring together designers and futurists from all over the world, including working with the Boys and Girls Club to help put young people on the path to great futures and teach and share strategies for designing for the future and the ethical challenges around emerging technologies. And Jack is an invention lead, design futurist and part-time faculty at Parsons in New York City. His practice is rooted in speculation as a means to empower imagination and explore what lies across the post-human horizon. Leveraging his background in both entertainment and psychology, he seeks to utilise design to create transformative technology to evolve human ontology. Jack had a past life in reality TV and is a comedian. No pressure. Together, they are some of the folks behind Primer, an annual speculative design conference created to prepare for the future and equip people to help shape it. Get your tickets for Primer via primerconference.us. Welcome to the show, Jack and Phil. Let's start with the big question. What the heck is speculative design? Oh, wow. That's a good question. (laughs) I have a definition or one of the definitions, the many definitions that are out there. It's a way to understand possibilities and to facilitate a more responsible path into the future. And while speculative design was never necessarily only meant to be about the future, that's sort of what we've clinged on to because we felt it was not only just a good vehicle for, you know, imagining outcomes for the future or the, I guess, how Dun and Raby used to present critical design, which is also in the same realm, the social, the cultural impact of design or emerging technologies and the ethical challenges around that. I'd like to hear Jack's Um Yeah, I think you nailed it. I, I think we should talk about maybe some history of it, at least, because um, you mentioned Dunn and Raby, uh, Tony Dunn and Viona Raby. They were at the RCA, the Royal College of Art, where they were... Uh, the heads of the interaction, the interaction design program there, and then sort of reformulated it as design interactions, and really started this conversation around using design to explore alternatives to the ways the world could be, the way human beings could be, the way like we interact with one another, we interact with technology, all of these things that there there are alternative visions and alternative sort of realities for what that could look like. I really feel like they sort of like spawned generations of people who are now out in the world and who are out in the world who are teaching speculative design in their own way, whether or not it's much more experiential or it's about the artifact or it's even about there's like a much more writing component or they're uh, immersive. These, These are all like people who are out in the world and teaching it to a whole new generation. I feel like I might be one of those people from that sort of second order generation. I uh, learned a lot from Elliot Montgomery, who is much more around the participatory 
um, side of things, uh, letting people letting people be involved in the process of imagining alternative futures, alternative presence, um, even alternative past, which I think is actually super fascinating. I think it's really interesting how a lot of us refer to Dun and Raby as sort of like the forefathers of um, forefather and foremother of critical design. Four parents, exactly, mm-hmm. of critical design, but speculative design has been practiced for much longer. And you can see it in architecture as sort of a, an exercise in academia. And critical design became its own thing in the late 90s when Tony, he, he coined the term in his book, I think it's Hertzian Tales. And, um, and then again, with the Designer Interactions Program, spawned off, just like Jack said. But it's, there are many people in Europe who have sort of taken critical design and it's still called critical design there. And I think sometime around, you know, in the aughts, it was coupled with speculative and critical design. And then it sort of became speculative. Design. And they don't, critical design hasn't necessarily faded away. There's definitely some purist practitioners out there. But then there's design fiction, which at one time it felt like design fiction was the popular term in America. And that was coined by I think, near, near Future Labs, like Julian Bleeker, and that got published into a paper, and that became this other version of speculative design, not as sort of conceptual, I don't even know if that's the right way to describe critical design, but it was this other flavor of it that was going. And so now there's, and that's still a very prominent term as well. And it's not a US versus Europe thing, but it's all sort of the same. But it, I think this evolution of like, one, the terminology and how it's manifested and practiced by people has been an interesting thing to watch over the last 20-something years. And I think that that's also part of the interest with the Design Futures Initiative broadly is that there are so many great practitioners in the world and there's such a large conversation about like, what is this practice? And people who are who are just like, I'm an artist and they're doing what other people would say is speculative design or people who are like, I'm a writer, but the type of writing they're doing is much more around the description of like designed artifacts are like telling stories about designers working in alternative worlds. Mm. Um, and then it becomes like a thing where it's like, to me, that, that feels like all part of the same space of practice. And part of what we're trying to do is like bring those voices together to see what comes out of deep conversations. Yeah. How do you apply speculative and critical design in your own day-to-day practice? At McKinsey, well, let me kind of go back to when I was working at GE Aviation, which is the first time I actually tried to bring speculative design into a corporate environment. So at the time, I was a, an interaction designer for GE Aviation, and then I later became a director there. So I had a little bit more authority to kind of push methodologies. And we would bring it into the, the brainstorming session, the vision and strategy workshop for airlines when we were working with airlines. And actually aviation, industrial businesses and airlines are a good place to use this because you have to sort of look pretty far out. For engines, aviation engines, it takes about 10 years for the engine to actually roll off the assembly line. So you have to do a lot of risk mitigation and planning. So that was the template that we used for a lot of things. Like These engines keep the planes in the sky. It's very important. Why can't we use that kind of rigor and risk mitigation to look at what we're building as software or for, for passengers and airlines and airplanes? And 
we would literally just smuggle the process in. We'd say, oh, we're going to do a journey map and we're going to look at what we're building for you in the next two years, but let's look beyond that because we know we can build software in the next two years, but let's look at next five years. Do you know what the world is like in five years? And we would do this exercise as sort of a kind of micro world building exercise of what is the airport of the future feel like and not try to hinge it too much on technology, though that's what they're interested in because they're like, well, how do we actually, you know, put butts in seats five years from now? Who are the people that we're designing for then? And how do we get them to pay for tickets and get more people to pay for tickets? So we'd sort of use these little anchors to keep them interested in the conversation, economic impact, the technology that's available then, how can they take advantage of drones and and beacons and all that stuff, and then kind of push onto the outer limits of, well, do you actually know what your customers, do you know who they are, how they're interacting, what their cultures are like, because these are the customers five years from now are probably the people who are in school today. Do we actually understand the people that we're designed for that are in the schools, the millennials at that time? And that pushed the conversation outside of like, how can we make money on people and what technologies can be used into like, what are the actual interactions? How do these people behaving in their families and what are the things they like to do? And that kind of started to push into the realm of like social impact and the ethics around, can we actually get these passengers to buy into a system that's tapping into their data or get them to like sell them things. Is that actually the right thing to do with our technology at that point? So that was the best we could do at that time. We weren't actually creating, the speculative design was more like, here's the airport of the future or here's the aircraft of the future. They might be autonomous and there might be drones flying around it. So it was more of very practical science fiction. I don't even call it science fiction. We were very careful around the terminology So like I said, we didn't call it speculative or critical design. It was more a visioning workshop. And that was it. We stopped it there. Today, I think it's a little bit more accepted. I think speculative design as a term is, it feels like a lot more people are talking about it. Um, We do strategic foresight at McKinsey. Um, We have a few people who actually actively working with governments and a lot of clients who are really invested in looking, having the long view. And we do a lot of uh, that thinking there. We're not exactly creating speculative and critical design projects like you might see in the media or at, in academia today, but we're sort of just kind of just getting there. Have you got any examples of where you've put speculative design into practice? It's so hard to measure an outcome for projects like that to say like, see, now the world is different. And th- this is where I think this conversation around how closely related speculative design can be with art, where it's just like, I went to that art exhibit and like, how do you measure how changed people are or that like five years from now, a person is totally like took different action in the world because they went to the MoMA. It's like really hard to draw that line. And so I feel like, Sort of the the hope is always like just putting things out in the world. People are interacting with them and you maybe don't even know who they are. And they're being just sort of like challenged by the project. And as a result, they're questioning sort of the decision making. And I think that comes sometimes like on a, a micro level, but sometimes it's on a macro level. A project that I did that I felt pretty good about in that regard was there's a lot of conversation around space right now. And... I've done, I had been working on this project of what does it look like to be non-anthropocentric in space? And I- What does that mean? What is anthropocentrism? Okay. Well, right. So like anthro human being and anthropocentrism would be that the world that we live in is centered on the human. 
and the Anthropocene, which is a whole other conversation, is that the time we currently live in is dominated by the fact that human beings are the predominant force shaping our planet. There's a lot of people who are going to be like, that's not the best definition of that. But <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm immediately like, wait a minute, you sure that humans are the ones that are doing that? Because maybe it's not us. Right, and I would say like... Um, so when you look at like archaeology, right, and you look at like the bands of time, there will be a band that is like human beings. Like there, there will be types of rock that are the rock itself is different because human beings are on the planet at that time. I feel like that is at a conceptual level, like what the Anthropocene to me is like is like trying to say that the planet itself at a very physical and a fundamental level is radically different because of human beings. And I was spent a lot of time just like being like, we just should stop making things that are so focused on, on the human and that that is already something that we're bringing into our explorations of space. We fire things to the moon and just like leave them on the moon and we don't care. Like what is garbage? Yeah, on we're the moon? assholes. We're <laughs> assholes. Space junk is like a huge yeah. problem. <laughs> I'm just imagining this time where we continue to just try and fire things at Mars and try and land there. And then we're just destroyed the planet and we haven't even landed. We haven't even physically been there yet. We just keep shooting things at it, hoping to try and land there. And maybe just our pure presence there is itself pollution. Like just by being there, we are polluting it. And so I had made this short little like film that was an attempt at imagining an alternative to what that could be, which is these scientists are just sort of bearing witness to the planet. They live in floating habitats above it and they are actually attempting to clean up uh, Mars after a a period of failed attempts at uh, landing on it. And that the entire point of them being there is to understand the possibilities of Mars being the origin of life. And so there's several layers to this, I guess. Um, But I did present that at, at the International Astronautical Congress as part of this track that's there that is put on by a series of artists and designers, including Nelly Ben-Hayoun, who's an incredible, incredible designer. Uh, and it is supposed to be, re- like, it is a track that is supposed to be challenging engineers and people working in the space industry, like, at their conference. So it is like, here's a series of projects that are alternatives to everything that this conference is sort of about, and that, to me, that is a lot of where these projects get from being like, okay, the project is, or like this little short film that like sits on my website is now like, I'm going to show pieces of it to people who are actually building, designing these things. Because that to me is the feedback loop is putting the projects in front of the people making the things so that they can be challenged by how they're making the things and hopefully make them different. That was a long winded way of saying <laughs> well let, let me ask, let me ask you this yeah how can listeners in its most simple form bring a little bit of speculative thinking maybe a little bit more critical thinking to their own practice to the, whatever they do you know and and so if we define it by the the terms that we've discussed so speculative design so thinking a bit more deeply about what it is that we're making in the future and what the impact of that might be and then critical thinking so being a little bit more critical, sceptical of the things that we make, how can other people who are listening bring that into what they're doing? 
I think the one thing we struggle with, and we, we do get this question a lot, is that there's no double diamond for speculative design or futurism or strategic foresight or science fiction authoring. They have There are multiple frameworks that all of these different disciplines have used to try and understand the future or world build. And, then, and world building is a discipline of its own as well. I wish that there was a double diamond for speculative design, or there's a way to easily explain. I think you actually did a really great job of explaining how it fits into that process. And I don't think it's as easy as like, yeah, just go do it. And you know, because a lot of people in the world today work at corporations and startups where it's not that easy to just make the wild object and to get away with it because there's funding behind it. And so just to speak tactically, I think there's a couple of different things that need to be done for those type of designers. One is just getting buy-in, really. So if you can imagine when design thinking became a thing and an actual practice, like how did you sell that? And it's just research, right? And it's just craft. There was also probably a very similar struggle of bringing this new structure or formula to corporations. So getting buy-in, first of all, is the most important thing. And maybe, again, playing with terminology or hinging on to whatever your company really cares about. If you're trying to have an, a conversation about ethics or privacy, what are you going to bring to your CEO or your design director to make them care about those topics? Are, do you use like data privacy because that's a popular topic? Like This is going to be the anchor that we're going to use to launch into all these different conversations around ethics and, and cultural impacts. And that's a great one, and people should use that. I mean, unfortunately, it was, you know, we're seeing the negative impact of those issues, but you should use that as a launching point if you can to have those much broader conversations. And then there's the actual practice of it, and there's, again, so many different ways you can practice it, like making the wild object, creating scenarios. Nick Foster, who works at X, which used to be Google X, created this really great video called The Selfish Ledger, and you can find it online today. And it was definitely a design fiction or a speculative narrative around what Google could become or the different ways like the, the ledger or the AI could actually tap into people's data. And there, there's one segment of that video that, that says like the ledger doesn't know something about its user, which happens to be its weight, the user's weight. So it, it taps into all this data it knows about the user to understand the aesthetics that that person likes, and it creates a scale. It 3D prints a scale just to acquire the weight, this piece of data. And when it got out, it was an internal video just meant to kind of poke and create a, a discussion around what are we doing and, and maybe just kind of stimulate some creativity and imagination. But it, it, there was a huge debate about it when it came out because they thought that, oh, this is actually real. This is what Google wants to do. And debate is always great, and that's sort of the intent of it sometimes, but that was one method of doing it. And there's tons of examples in the world around, around these vision videos that people do internally. Like Apple has a very famous one called the Knowledge Navigator, which was done in 1984, which is sort of the, I don't think it was intended to be the precursor of the iPad, but there are a lot of components of this video that have like a touchscreen, it's a touchscreen tablet, it has an AI, a virtual assistant, it connects to the internet magically, which wasn't very commercially available at that time. And there are a lot of things you can do just to kind of like artifacts or scenarios to kind of create those visions for your company. But again, I think the, the steepest hill to climb right now is getting people bought into the idea of speculation, not just like, oh, we paid you for this thing. This is what we want you to build. And it has to be out in the next year or so. And I think I think of um, 
speculative design in a way as a, a provocation. The, just the term in itself because it doesn't necessarily have one meaning or it doesn't have a double diamond or it doesn't quite fit any other boxes. The, the term itself is a, a provocation for people. It makes people question something. And it's certainly the thing that I try to do with this podcast and pretty much anything else I do is provoke people to think in other ways. Speculative design is a label that allows you to do that. It makes people question what it is or well, what is that? That's the starting point. If you can get people to do that on a day-to-day basis, that's where it begins. You don't have to have a, a scaled outcome of what the result of speculative design is because to be quite fair, you're absolutely right, Jack, over a period of time, you can't know what the future is actually going to be until it really happens. You can sort of guess, but there's not, there's not always a, a definitive answer about what the impact is. And unfortunately in business, that's what people are asking for. They're asking for a definitive understanding of the impact of whatever it is. And, and, and the point is that you can't get that. But by being more critical and asking more questions, we can try to figure out whether or not we should really do something or not. And that's probably the most important thing. So is there a book or other, it could be, documentary, whatever you'd like, a game, cards, that you think is a really great starting point for someone who's kicking off thinking about speculative stuff? <laughs> I think, and I'm, I think that Jack will agree that the seminal book to start with is called Speculative Everything by Anthony Dunn and Fiona Raby. Yeah, absolutely. It, and granted that, that it, it is a collection of projects, both from them and I think other designers at the RCA, it is more positioned around critical design. I think it's still a good start. And it might not seem very practical, but I think as far as just hitting you hard on the head around the potential and power of, of this type of design and the type of issues that it surfaces, it'll get you interested. I used to use this card deck that was developed by Situation Lab, Stuart Candy, called The Thing from the Future. And it's a nice, very easy introduction to getting people to practice it because it, it's just a card deck with four different prompts and you can just play a game, basically. And granted, you don't want people to think that this is a game, but you can start to get them introduced to how you think about the future. I really want to highlight the uh, Extrapolation Factory's Operator's Manual. Manual yeah. yeah, which has a lot of um, amazing sort of workshop and participatory futuring methods in it. Which is, I would say, primarily how this practice shows up in my work, which is like engaging with people around how they think about a certain domain. Yeah, I mean, I will say that we talked about a lot of kind of tactical, practical ways to practice this or introduce it to your company. But it is a, a very, like we said before, rigorous practice mired in research. And it's not easy. I mean, as long as we've been practicing it and doing workshops with people, we have a platform that we've created to kind of help introduce. We have a lot of one-on-one talks and one-on-one workshops, but to do it really well, to do it at the level that Dunraby and the people from RCA and some of these other people who are actually practicing futurists, it takes exercise. You have to be able to unpack the world differently. So even when we do these workshops, people think about the future as like it's now, just 10 years later, and it, the same stuff appears. Like there are mobile phones, but maybe they're smaller. 
or like the internet is more widespread and they can't think outside of the box or outside of technology. That's sort of the issue of being in San Francisco is everything's connected to technology or social media. I mean, you know, I can't even count how many like Facebook apps of the future or mobile apps of the future came out of some of these workshops. And it's not that they, you know, they're wrong. They just didn't understand how to think about implications. And that's the one thing that we really try to kind of press that it's not just about the tech, it's about the implications, the impact in the society, like our role in that in, in the future, and, and uh, a lot of other dimensions that people just don't, they just completely dismiss, or maybe not intentionally, but they just don't, they don't address. Do you think there's anything that the design industry needs to do to change, to, to adapt to that? I mean, yeah, I, I think just being more open to the practice. I think, again, like we said, businesses don't want to invest in something that they can't see they can't there's no ROI you know how are we going to measure this it's happening in five years and it sounds like it's reasonable it sounds like a reasonable threat or opportunity but how do we invest in that so I think just being more open to those ideas and then and being able to extract what those design proposals mean that it's not just like this is the future and you should either go for it or avert from it I think they should understand like, well, how can we like address it in a very sophisticated and logical way that we can drive our business, change society, influence society, influence our users or whatever it is that they're caring about and actually be more impactful to the world, not just like their bottom line. Every morning I wake up and I have this thought that we're doing it wrong. Kind of imagine this evolutionary path that humans kind of went on and something happened like Monty Python style and we went off on this tangent and that's where we are now. And, um, and in a way we kind of have to undesign a lot of what's been done. We're very narrow-minded. I mean, I think that we, we feel like we're the most advanced species on the planet, but when you really take a step back, we're really irresponsible. We're really just very ignorant about a lot of things and very like we do things very unilaterally we don't think about societies outside of our borders. It's both fascinating and disappointing at the same time. Not to be too dystopic about things, but <laughs> but the human mind and, and we are we're animals and we're still figuring things out and we're actually very, very primitive. I mean, we've put, you know, people on the moon and, and satellites in, into orbit and stuff, and that's great, great advancements. But but, <laughs> but did you watch the what what's the film with Ryan Gosling as the was is it the one where they go to the moon. First man. First man. Mm-hmm. Watched this the other day and I'm thinking, I would have never got in that tin can. Like, yeah. no way. They were inside nothing and they just shot them up there. Yeah, it's yeah. When that, in, the, in the scene where it's like creaking, I was like, I would have been like, okay, hey, uh, <laughs> one of the bolts is loose. We need to not, it's not ready yet. I, I want to know what, what really is Elon Musk's strategy for putting people on Mars because it's like 99. 5 or 8% carbon dioxide like just breathing on Mars is going to be quite a challenge not to mention getting back if we have to or you know all the other things around just surviving there we haven't even explored the depths of the ocean exactly yeah. we shouldn't be allowed to explore another planet until we can actually responsibly fix our own just like sustain on our own planet I mean, I, we're just, I don't think we're ethically evolved enough to be able to like participate outside the boundaries of our own planet. 
And I <laughs> maybe and, that, that's why they made it so hard for us to get off. Yeah, huh? I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Right. Even if if you were another species and you saw our planet and you see all the the space junk that's floating around it, you're like, okay, they don't get it yet. We still have like a radical herd mentality where we do everything that everybody else is doing. We like buy into the same things that everybody else is buying in. And mm-hmm. designers, as creative as we think we are, do the same thing. There are trends as far as what, even just like what a website looks like, what uh, just interactivity on web pages is all having, like all buttons look all the same. Like at its most micro level, we are like, and template, like ready to go and everything now looks That's because humans are lazy. That's why there's so much space junk. Right. We'll just leave it, whatever. Someone else will clean it up. 20 years time, I'll be gone. Who cares? I mean, there's so much of that short-term thinking that is the reason why we are so stuck in like, I'm doing this thing today and I don't really care. And that's why speculative design and and critical design is so damn important. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the conference? Primer is a conference that we started in 2017. And originally it was meant to be sort of the annual gathering for our meetups. I mean, in 2017, we only had a few chapters in the United States so just to give you an idea how, how fast we've grown, in May of last year, we had six chapters. We had, I think, three in the United States and then two in Europe. Today, we, have, we are over 30. There is definitely a huge interest across the world around this topic. And the conference was really just meant to be the annual gathering for all of them. And it's, it's since grown. Uh, this year, it will be at uh, Parsons New School, where Jack is faculty, June 13th through the 15th. This year, we had 150 applications for speakers, workshops, and exhibitions. It's three times as many as the first year. We have Paola Antonelli. From the MoMA. Then we also have Manoj uh, Fenelon from Parsons. Um, We have Yatasha Womack, who um, wrote an incredible book on Afrofuturism. Then we also have Parsons and Charlesworth, who are practicing speculative designers. Matthew Manos who recently wrote a book... Towards a preemptive social enterprise. I think yeah, it was called, yeah, about uh, all of the ways in which we've already done terrible things to the fabric of our world. And yeah, So we have a, a pretty well-rounded program. We have been trying year after year to, again, expand the community, inviting science fiction writers, Afrofuturism um, writers. We've got strategic foresight practitioners that are coming in, actual like futurists that are practicing in large corporations. We've got the art. We've got critical designers, like pure critical design. It's a huge spectrum of, of people that we've invited this year. So many conferences about the future are people talking about like the future of work and yeah. the future of interfaces and the future of transport mobility. And they're so, it's all about the future of a thing. And mm-hmm. this conference is much more about the practice of thinking about the future. I wouldn't have really anyone who's going to get up there and just be like, here's the future of the toilet. Yeah. And what. But that would actually be <laughs> a great talk. And the reason I say that is because I actually proposed a thesis on toilets. Yeah. In particular, public toilets. Waste is a big issue. Uh, <laughs> it is. Bathrooms and toilets and public toilets in particular are terribly, terribly designed. Yeah. And, uh, that's a whole other. That's a whole other podcast, <laughs> right? But I don't want to. I don't want to make any like toilet puns either. But anyway, well, they're really shit. Let's be honest. <laughs> hey, there's that comedian. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I'm going to say thank you to both of you for being here. It's been great to have you. So there you have it. 
Primer 19 is happening this June in New York City. Get your tickets now from primerconference.us. Primer 19 is organised by the Design Futures Initiatives in collaboration with the School of Design Strategies at the New School at Parsons. There are some amazing speakers on the lineup, and you'll be able to catch me running my Impact the World Isn't Ready for workshop at Primer 19. We'd love to get your feedback or thoughts on speculative design. Are you using speculative design in your practice? Go to thisishcd.com and register to join our Slack channel to join in the discussion and learn about how other people across the design community are using speculative design. We use our Slack channel to shape future episodes of the podcast, as well as sharing interesting design-related content every day. I'm Chi Ryan. Thanks for listening. See you again soon.